Good evening. How is everyone doing? Good. Good to see you all. Welcome to our annual Foundations Conference. Glad many of you are able to make it. I know we'll have some more uh, tomorrow as well. Each year for our Foundations Conference, we usually uh, pick a subject or a theme to kind of center our conference on. And as Pastor Justice and I were praying and discussing what would be a good theme, um, what the Lord laid on our hearts was we are getting ready to send out Raymond and Leanne Cook as missionaries from this church. Wave your hands, just in case you don't know them. Wave your hands, Raymond and Leanne. I think everyone does. <clears throat> but we're getting ready to send them out from this church. They are, uh, have been raising, are still raising support. They are getting very close, okay? Um, so it's still your opportunity to, to support them. Um, and we want to be a church that sends them out well, right? And we don't want to be a church that just um, sends them on their way and then either individually or as a church, which we are doing, just send them their check to their organization each month. Um, they need prayer, they need love, they need support, um, they need shepherding, right? And that's not just from like one or two of their good friends that are here, but it's from the body. It is important for the body to be the body to them. So uh, Justice and I, over the past year, have gotten to know uh, the president of Disciple the Nations, Dustin Meadow, who's going to be sharing tonight with us. We've done some Zoom calls with him and um, some emails back and forth, and that is the organization that the Cooks are going through. And uh, Justice and I have been blessed uh, not only to get to know Dustin, but also his wife uh, last night, and also just to learn about the organization and uh, their heart for sending missionaries, for um, strengthening the church, enabling the church uh, to send missionaries well. So Dustin Meadows was born and raised in a cattle ranch in Oklahoma, right? He, he and his lovely wife have been married for 18 years. That's pretty good. And they've got four kids, uh, 15, 12, 11, and 6. Did I get that right? Yes. All right. <clears throat> And Dustin has been in, uh, in either local church serving in the ministry or overseas serving in the ministry um, for about 15, 20 years. Yep. Um, and while he was in Costa Rica, um, he felt the Lord laying on his heart for him to start Disciple the Nations. It is really multifaceted, even as I was learning um, some new things last night. And um, I appreciate uh, the friendship that uh, Dustin and I have been able to, to develop over the past year and a half and getting to know him. Um, I think we are going to be super blessed this weekend. And so I've given him a carte blanche to say whatever he wants. Okay? <clears throat> so he, he and I were kind of joking that he gets to, to lob the grenades and then I get to pull out the shrapnel over the next couple of weeks. All right? <laughs> Anyway, um, I, I want to uh, ask all of you to make sure that your hearts are open to whatever the Lord has to say to you this week through Dustin, all right? Um, I think we, there are some truths that we need to hear and make sure we're not just knowing it, but that we are walking it out. So please help me welcome Dustin Meadows. I guess Justice wanted me here, so is well, that okay? No, that's perfect. Allow me a couple of jokes, okay? All right, so I hope you've got your Bible. We, I want to be in the Word this weekend with you, and we got a lot of ground to cover. I apologize for the book. Um, everybody receives that differently. So my wife is a school teacher, and she loves to follow along and take notes. And so for those of you in here that are like that, great. For those of you that panic, I apologize. You can just close it up. It'll be okay. I'll say most of the things that's in there, so no worries. Um, but I do want to cover some ground this weekend. This is our what we call sending church training. <clears throat> because I'm really creative, and I come up with really cool titles. Um, and so hopefully this will make sense to you as we go. First, I want to introduce you to Disciple the Nations a little bit, uh, if we could. And I don't have the clicker, so I'm going to look at it with you. We can go ahead and go forward. 
I, I did put a page in your booklet that kind of describes who Disciple the Nations is. But Disciple the Nations is just a missions agency, right? But we're not just a missions agency. Well, there's some things that are a little bit different about us. But we partner with churches and with missionaries to be able to accomplish the Great Commission. Our mission is the Great Commission. It's in our name, right? Disciple the nations. That's what we're called to do, and that's what our goal is. And so all the facets that are built in, the things that are required in order for us to accomplish it, that's the things that we want to try to help to, to do. But we readily acknowledge <clears throat> that we're a temporary organization. Okay? We're temporary. When the Lord comes back, there's absolutely no reason for us to exist. There's none. And so we do not, we're not built and, and designed in order to grow our organization. Uh, that's something that is convictional for us. The very first page of our board handbook says that. We are a temporary organization. Our organization is designed to help the church to grow throughout the world. Okay? Um, we're a parachurch organization. We want to come alongside and help churches to accomplish the Great Commission. There's a few things that we do to, to do that. Um, oh, go ahead. I kind of said some of that. <clears throat> go ahead. There we go. So there's our new logo. <clears throat> we had an old logo that uh, I designed, and it was terrible, so I hired somebody that knew what they were doing. <laughs> and we did this. <clears throat> so to break it down to you really quickly, um, this threefold cord, if you see that at the bottom of the pillar, threefold cord, so that's us with an agency, and then the local church and the missionary. The threefold cord, if we work together, we believe that we'll be able to not easily be broken, right? Also, the threefold cord works as a rope. If you remember, William Carey, the father of modern missions, told to his pastor, Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the well. I'm happy to go on the mission field, but you must hold the rope, right? And the idea, so many times, we get this false understanding of what it means to send. We think the missionaries are the ones that are really called to serve. They're the ones that are really called to suffer, but if you're holding the rope on both ends, don't both of you have calluses? Right? And, and so we want to recognize what it means to send, not just send, but to send well. Okay? So we partner with churches and missionaries to see the church, which is what the pillar is. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth of the living God. Okay? So this is the... There, Timothy's in Ephesus, if you know this, um, and there was a temple of Diana there, and you can look it up, fantastic, beautiful temple, but giant pillars and buttresses. Um, and Paul writes this to Timothy, Timothy gets this letter, and out Timothy's window he can see this great temple. But Paul says that is the temple of a dead God, right? But the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth of the living God. Right? And so this is the way that we believe that Christ has uh, ordained to get the gospel to the nations is through the local church. And so our job is we partner with churches and missionaries to see the church grown throughout the world. That's where the circle comes in for the glory of God. And that's where the top arrow, arrow in the pillar, if that makes sense. So if we overthink our logo that much, <laughs> what do you think you ought to expect for today? Okay. So that's our heartbeat. All right, go ahead. Now, we were really designed off of some biblical convictions. So I've been hanging out with missionaries for about 23 years. Every chance I get, they're my heroes. They were really my heroes uh, until I realized they would let me be a part of them, and I kind of lost some faith in them, right? Uh, it wasn't quite as cool of a club as it used to be. But when I got there um, and, and hanging out with missionaries, there's just been a few things that that we've seen over the years, that our convictions drove us to do something about, right? And if you don't have biblical convictions, my, my encouragement for you today is to get some, okay? Some true convictions, not something that you just say you believe and that you go around not, not changed, unchanged completely by it. The American church, we're really good at that. The last two and a half years, I, I pastor a local church in southeastern Oklahoma, and I have just been battling this cultural Christianity thing, this, this ability that we have to say that we believe something but have it impact absolutely nothing in our life. 
and you understand biblically, so I do something with, with my church. Um, when I'm talking to them, I say, well, there's only one problem with that. And my church knows to go, the Bible, right? <laughs> That's the problem with it. <clears throat> because when God creates a new person, right, when he redeems a person, brings them to himself, he, he creates a new person by first giving them a new heart, right? That, that's how it is. It, it's not they come up with these new, be, new behaviors and then they get a new heart. No, no, no. When God creates a new person, when he redeems them, he gives them a new heart. And those, that new heart comes with new affections. And the new affections lead to new behaviors. And it's a, it's a chain of events. It has to happen. If you claim that you have a new heart, but you don't have new affections or new behaviors, I don't believe you. Right? Why do I not believe you? Because convictionally, I believe that's what happens. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And so if I believe that, I can't continue down the path. And so I pray that you guys will grab those convictions so deeply that you have to do something. Okay? And that's where we were. So there's a few things that, that drove us to start Disciple the Nations. So first of all was the lack of biblically faithful missions. And, all right, let's, let's kind of walk through it, okay? What you're going to get through today and tomorrow, I'll give you kind of in a snapshot, all right? So my encouragement to you is to let theology drive, okay? What happens so many times is methodologies drive, Okay? But theology has got to drive. So theology should drive you to mission, but theology should also direct your methods. What happens so many times is people get a methodology and they forget about theology and they let methodology drive them to do certain things. And then ultimately, they're not actually accomplishing the mission that God has given us. So if we understand biblically at our core level what the mission is that God has given us, then that should drive us to action but then also direct our actions. Make sense? you got to give me some feedback here. Okay. I'm trying a lot harder than you are right now. Okay. So with these things, these convictions, it started with this poor methodologies that we see in missions. Um, I told the guys last night, that I said, to be honest, if about 90% of the world's missionaries would come home, it would do the world a favor. That's how much bad stuff is going on over there. We are exporting so rapidly bad theology. Bad theology leads to really bad missions. And bad missions leads to really bad theology over there. Right? And we're going to have to hurry up our export of good stuff. Same thing Paul does in Titus chapter 1, right? Paul leaves Titus in Crete. Paul, uh, Titus wasn't from Crete. That was kind of a problem, right, if you're Titus? I'm leaving you there, okay? Right? You sure? I don't. Um, okay. What do you mean do? Right? And he says so. Appoint elders in every city. Set all these things in order, right? And then he walks through. Here's the qualifications of an elder. Why is that important? Because there are tons of false teachers that are upsetting whole families. This is like verse 10 or 11 of chapter one. Upsetting whole families by teaching what they ought not to teach. And so Paul's answer to loads of false teaching is to do what? Multiply good teachers, right? That's why he says you raise up these elders that can do what verse 9 says, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. You got to have elders that do that. If justice shows up and teaches that Jesus is a reincarnation of a hippo, you need to not let him be your elder anymore, <laughs> right? These are things we've got to do convictionally that causes us to action, right? So poor methodologies, that's something that we wanted to fix. Another thing that we wanted to fix was the lack of church centrality. So the vast majority of missionaries that are sent out and are now overseas don't even attend local churches. Did you know that? And, okay, so uh, churchless ministries, churchless Christians, it, what's the problem with that? The Bible. The Bible is the problem with it. The fact that that never happens ever in Scripture. That's the problem. 
And the fact that lots of mission methodologies are set up totally separate from local churches and missionaries think that they can go and accomplish the mission of God apart from the local church is wrong. Right? He told me I could say it. Amen. Okay. So another thing was we uh, aim for mature disciples, not just converts. This is one of those core things. We're going to talk about some of these things when, I, when I, we finally get into the subject here. Um, but hopefully this will make sense. There are mission methodologies and mission agencies completely set up that do not care about discipling, that don't aim for maturity at all. They only aim for converts. And that's wrong. Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present every man mature in Christ. Paul's ultimate aim was not converts. Your methods cannot just be for converts. This is why guys named Charles Finney, I don't know if you know Charles Finney, but Charles Finney showed up in the U.S. and started doing this totally different thing that was totally um, against the way biblical me- methods have always been. And he changed the way he did min- missions and ministry, changed the way he preached. And so he only worked for converts. And he changed the definition of convert. You didn't have to actually be converted. You just had to pray a prayer. And so you start this thing where people will show up and say, does anybody want to go to heaven? Great, pray after me. Does saying that actually convert a person? No. If you do that to my six-year-old, I won't hit you, but I will shake the mess out of you. (laughs) You're not going to do that. You can't do that. Why? Conviction. Conviction. I don't want these thousands or millions of people that are convinced they're okay with God because we've sold them this bill of goods. Guys, you don't get to come to God on your terms. Try that with your wife. (laughs) Offend your wife and go to her and say, hey, we're going to be okay again. You're going to do the dishes and you're going to love me. Just try that. It doesn't work. This is the God of the universe who has revealed himself to us and what it takes for somebody to be saved. And it is not, does anybody want to go to heaven? Right? We deal with this a ton. We have what I call good old boy theology in southeastern Oklahoma. And I've been trying to kill it. I want to murder it very publicly. And we have to be a little bit aggressive to this type of stuff because it's so pervasive. That's all that where we're at, that's all the churches around us has preached for over 100 years. That's all they've taught. And somebody's got to go after it because people are not being saved. And they come, when they come, they come and they feel very comfortable in our churches because we're not declaring the truth of the scriptures. And so my encouragement, I hope you're getting it, my encouragement to you is to read the Bible, believe the Bible with such conviction that you will change, you will allow it to be your authority. You will place yourself under the scriptures. Is that okay? Amen. Okay. If we're not on the same page, we'll go do something else. Okay? We're with you. Good. I, I want... I just want to be honest up front. It's All right. Another thing that we saw that greatly concerned us is in 23 years of hanging out with missionaries, I've never met a missionary that suffered from being overly encouraged. It has been brutal. We have on multiple occasions had missionaries come over to our house and sit on our couch and cry and talk about being forsaken, abandoned, forgotten. The number of missionaries that go and serve overseas and then come home and never even attend church again is way too high. Because they're so broken and hurt. Because what happens is they're amputated. The church goes, best of luck. Pats them on the rear end. Says, go get them, tiger. 
And that's it. And biblically, that's not the way we should sin. And so this, more, this afternoon, what, evening? When are we? What day is it? <laughs> At this session tonight, Lord willing, what I've got to do convictionally, we, we've got three sections here. Tonight is going to be what I'm going to call Start Well. For you guys to be able to build a missions program at your church, you've got to start on the right foundation. You've got to start on that right theology. And so we're going to talk about some theologies, and some of it I want to try to help you see some of the really poor methodologies that you can get to if you don't have the right theology. Because if you have the right theology, it will be guardrails that will prevent you into getting into some of these things that are not what God has called us to do. Okay? And then tomorrow is going to get very practical. I want to help you. Tomorrow's the first session is going to be called Serve Well. And so it's how do you build in this biblical strategy for missions and then implement this in your churches so that you can actually go start to accomplish what God has called us to do. And then the third section, which will be tomorrow afternoon, will be what I call Send Well. And that's how do you actually um, develop missionaries, make sure they're assessed and, and ready to go, prepared, fully equipped, launch them, serve with them, shepherd them, and make sure they can go and achieve their goal. They've got a beautiful goal, right? The task is a beautiful task. We want to help them to accomplish their task for the glory of the Lord, right? You want to invest, it takes a lot of money, right? You want to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into missionaries for 20 years so they can accomplish nothing? This is a serious call that we have. And so hopefully, Lord willing, this will be very practical. Tonight's not going to be super practical, but hopefully it will be that foundation that will help you. Okay? Questions, comments, fears, or frustrations before we get jumping in? Okay. Oh, the last thing I forgot. <clears throat> I should read my stuff over there. Uh, I was using that as my notes and failed. The last thing is we want to steward gospel resources well. Um, the average mission agency costs about 125 to 15% for administration fees. And so every dollar that a missionary raises, they end up turning around and giving about that percentage. Now, I, the highest I know of is 21%, uh, but they range in through there. Some are as low as 10, but the average is 125 to 15, okay? And um, it's not getting any cheaper, and it's not getting easier for missionaries, especially the good ones, to raise support. And so since we recognize we're a temporary agency, we wanted to build ourselves around the most financially prudent we could be. We, we want to steward gospel resources well. And so we are designed to operate on a 5% admin fee, um, which means we lose money on every missionary we get. Okay, <laughs> That's what that means. But... Uh, part of my job is to go find churches and individuals that believe that missionaries ought to be sent well, and they will help cover some of those costs so that we can do some things. We also do a lot of uh, our resources are in-house. We find ways, like for example, if you want to learn Spanish for ministry, anybody? Shameless plug right here. Uh, we have DTN language resources. For a normal average couple to go learn Spanish to learn ministry, it's $29,400. And they only get to what's called an intermediate high. You need to, before you can even start missions, uh, your actual ministry, you need to at least be an advanced low. So $29,400, you get to intermediate high. For about $13,000, we can get our people to, inter, uh, to advanced mid. That's for a couple, right? Um, because we did that in-house, and we'd make no money on it. We just pass, we give missionaries special pricing that just covers the cost of what it costs us to be able to pay national teachers to teach language and cultural acquisition. Okay? We do things like that because we want to find ways to take a dollar and make it look like a dollar fifty. Right? Make sense? Good to go? All right. Let's do it then. <clears throat> so ultimately, I want you to know this. I'm here to serve Liberty Church, and I recognize we have other churches here. Um, I was told we have other churches. Do we have other churches here? Yes? You're from this church, though. <laughs> Nobody else said yes. You're from a different church? Yeah. What church are you with? Uh, Christ Presbyterian. Christ Presbyterian, both of you. Very good. Welcome. 
welcome. Anybody else? Any other churches? Tomorrow? Excellent. Okay. So my point is my goal for this thing is actually to serve Liberty Church and your church. Christ Christ Presbyterian? Okay. So the goal is to, to give you the resources that we can. So I've tried to tailor this to about where you're at, but it's hard to tailor to multiple ones. So if you have individual questions, please let me know. Here to serve. Okay? All right, let's jump in. <clears throat> so um, let's go to the pictures. Yeah. So this is Koba. Uh, I, Candy and I actually got to take a trip um, to Mexico, and we got to climb. The, I got to climb. She has a bad knee. So I got to climb this. And uh, Coba was an old Mayan ruin. Um, it's really fascinating. It's very tall. Uh, it doesn't look like much, but by the time you get to the top, it's much. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so uh, go ahead and sh- show the other pictures. This shows a little bit about once you get to the top. Um, now, this was obviously a um, kind of a temple to a dead god sort of thing, as they worship the animism was the thing. But I got to the top and I was just hit with some idea that I just climbed a bunch of stairs and they were not new stairs, right? They were ancient steps. And so the first thing I want you to grasp, and and this is a long story to tell you this point, missions is not, so many times you're going to get, here's the new thing in missions. And anytime they say, here's the new thing in missions, your red flags ought to be going off like crazy. Because this are, these are ancient steps. God has outlined, if he's the one who gives us the mission, he also gives us the methods. He doesn't just you know, ordain the, the ends, but he also ordains the means. And so I want you to be very weir- leery, weary, leery. Once you learn other languages, you forget English, okay? So leery, that's a word, right? Uh, you, you should be very leery of new things. There's no new truth. New truth is actually old heresy. Okay, that's what it is. And so let's um, let's think and and prepare for old steps. I, I want to tell you that I'm not here to teach you anything new, but I certainly want to just drive you back to the scriptures. Okay, so step one, very simple: let theology drive. There's a reason that we don't do missions by putting. Uh, pictures of puppies up and having Sarah McLaughlin sing in the arms of the angel, right? Um, that opens people's checkbook, but that's not the methods or anything that we do. So I love my glasses, and I hate my glasses, right? My glasses ruined my modeling career. Uh, I have four kids, and they're always throwing something at me, right? And you think you're tough, and then you get hit in the glasses, and you realize I'm not tough because that hurts, Right? So I don't like them. I don't like fumbling around without them, though. But my glasses give me this new ability to see the world and to see it much more clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, very important missions passage for us. If you've got your Bibles, if you'd turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, of course, writing to the church at Corinth. Second Corinthians chapter four, start in verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's covered up, right? If it's prevented from being seen, if it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, in the case of those who are perishing, the God, you notice the little G, right? That's Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, this is how salvation works, right? Their their eyes are blinded, but God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown similarly, right? The way he's shown into creation. Let there be light, He also says to a dead and darkened and blinded heart of an unbeliever, let there be light. He shines 
in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, uh, in talking with my people, I have this saying, I say a bunch, which is, there's this understanding we have to grasp. And, and, and what that means, what I mean by that is we have to grasp truth by first rejecting error. Right? And this grasping of truth is really an embracing of reality. See, what happens is unbelievers in the world, they walk around as if there is no God. Right? Our cultural Christianity that is so pervasive in our area of um, the United States, I hope it's not as bad here, but in our area, they show up for a couple of hours on Sunday and then they function as atheists the rest of their time. Now, is there a God? Yes. Yes, there is. As they walk as if He does not exist, they're rejecting reality. Right? So we have to embrace reality by first rejecting this other idea. Okay? So my point in in that is this. The world is going to give you loads of different viewpoints on the world. Talking about biblical worldview. Right? See, the Bible is given to us, God has revealed himself to us so that we can see the world through the lens of the truth. Through we can embrace, so we can embrace the reality of what is actually going on in the world, what is actually going on in people's hearts, and then adjust accordingly. Right? And so one of the things we have to recognize is that the gospel is veiled. They don't understand it. They don't see it. Our mission will not make sense to the world. This is why Paul says this is foolishness. Preaching is foolishness. The world, if you're on mission with the Lord, they will surely hate you. American church is very strange because we're a church that's not hated very much. It's changing. The days are changing. A lot of times we're not hated because we're not actually doing what we're called to do. We're not standing out against the culture that has embraced what they say is reality but is not. So, what worldviews, I, I, to be real honest, to do this, I have to take some things um, for granted, I guess. I, I, I have to assume that you know some things. Okay, so I have to trust a little bit in Mike and in, in Injustice to do a good job, right? So we're going to cover a few things, though, just very briefly, because these are worldview things that impact the way we do missions, right? So first thing is God's ultimate purpose is for His glory. That is the reality of all things. Right? The world will not say that God's ultimate purpose is for His glory. They will reject that idea. But we must not only reject it, we must embrace it, and that must drive us to certain things. Right? This is one of those theology things that will drive us a certain way. Okay? So, great John Piper book, Mission, first sentence in Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions agencies exist because worship doesn't, right? That's why we're temporary. When the Lord comes back, He'll be done with us. Missions will be done. Missions is a temporary task, right? So it's not the ultimate task. Our ultimate task is to worship the Lord. Everything that we do is to worship the Lord. Why do we evangelize? Because it's through evangelism that the Lord might create a brand new worshiper, right? Because He's worthy of more worshipers. Right? He's worthy of that. Why do we disciple? So that that new worshiper might worship more purely and more faithfully, more fervently. Right? Why am I being discipled? Because I don't worship him as he deserves. I want to be discipled so that I will worship more fervently and passionately as well. Does that make sense? We fellowship. Why? So that we can spur one another on to, to worship more. Why do we join together as a church? So that we can do that. We can join together corporately and worship our great God. Okay? This is what we do. This is the ultimate motivation in missions, is the glory of God. There are lots of motivation to missions. Lostness, sure. Lack of access to the gospel, obviously. But those motivations won't keep you on the field. Over 3 billion people have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. But guess what? Not one of them deserves heaven. 
And so if you make your passion for missions their lostness, it will not keep you on the field. You will get over there and you will realize very quickly that these people don't deserve grace. What keeps you over there though? That I didn't deserve grace. That God in His sovereign grace and mercy toward me gave it to me. And He is worthy of all of my worship. He's worthy of my life. I lay myself down as a living sacrifice. Why? Because He's worthy. It's that that keeps us on the field. It's that that keeps us proclaiming to a lost and dying world. Okay? So that has got to be that foundation. The glory of God is our number one ultimate motivation to missions. Your success in missions, your perseverance in missions, even your hope of finding the right biblical faithful path in missions all depends on whether or not you recognize that the goal of your life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Another thing would be that God is a missionary God. The fact that God's nature and character drives this mission also is very foundational to us. I love uh, the early parts of Genesis. Teach so many important things about our faith. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is when we're introduced to, well, we kind of get talked about a little bit in uh, earlier chapters, but for the most part, it's telling the, the creation story in chapters 1 and 2, right? Chapter 3, they really focus down on mankind, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, right? It takes 14 verses to describe how we get from being made perfect, perfect relationships, to how we fall, do miserable stuff. And it actually doesn't take that much, but then it, it describes what that fall caused. And it's 14 verses, the first place that the gospel could ever be presented is in Genesis chapter 3.15. The very first place that the gospel is presented is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first one, the proto-evangelium. God, as soon as there was a lost and dying world, he came into the lost and dying world with the announcement, the pronouncement of the gospel. God is a missionary God. He was the first missionary. And this is his heartbeat. This is who he is all the way back. We also know that because God is a missionary God, we see this in God's mission, the mission of the Son, and we see it in the mission of this Holy Spirit. Jesus says he will build his church. Revelation 7 is the glorious thing. This is that reality of what will happen. Revelation uh, 7, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on our throne and to the Lamb. That will happen. That's the reality of missions, is there will be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? Because God is a missionary God. And as what Job says, he's sovereign and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Nobody's going to be able to stop him. Habakkuk 2.14 is true. The glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's true. We operate in that reality. It's not real, uh, reality yet, but it is coming and promised and it as, is as sure as the dawn. And so that is that foundational thing that causes us to serve with hope. Why do we even have an opportunity to succeed? Because God won't fail. So you're not called to go be on a losing team. You're called to go be a part of God's greatest purpose of redeeming a people for Himself, for His great glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Third little thing that I'm kind of hoping you get is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the exclusive remedy to man's greatest need. Now, I really have to stress this whole thing, this good boy theology. Good old boy stuff doesn't work. Now, last year's statistic came out that said 
that 63% of all evangelicals do not believe that lost people will go to hell. And if you don't believe, I don't know how to help you. Right? The only problem with that is the Bible. Thank you. So this is the thing we've got to have at our core. Right? We believe the Bible. I don't know how 63% can believe that. Exactly. Mm. Number four, God achieves His gracious purposes of redeeming a people through the sending of His Son. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. And now in sending His servants to the nation. John chapter 20, verse 21, great missions verse. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is how it works. So I don't have whole time to talk about missions and what missionaries are, but we understand that we've got to go. Right? We've got to go to take the gospel. James Henry Thornwell says this, and it's, it's just been a precious quote for me, but he says, as Jesus by his sacrifice purchased redemption, we by ours, by our what? Our sacrifice must make it known. We are privileged to join the Godhead who made that covenant of redemption in eternity past to redeem a people, and now we are privileged to join the mission of God. So, let's get started. What does it mean to have a biblically faithful, gospel-centered, God-honoring, effective missions ministry in your church? So, a couple of theologies that will continue to impact what it is that we're trying to do. Hey, here's my other notes I was looking for. Just found them. Hmm. Okay. So, what theologies? Serious theologies that will drive us. One, how about soteriology? This is the doctrine of salvation. What we believe about this. So, uh, has anybody ever had evangelism classes? Yeah. So, anybody ever taken something called EE, Evangelism Explosion? Yeah? So, not an attack on Evangelism Explosion. It's written by a guy named D. James Kennedy, great brother, and the Lord Presbyterian guy out of Florida. Um, but it starts with two diagnostic questions. Do you, know, do you remember what they are? It's okay if you don't. So it starts by saying this. The way you start your evangelism is you say, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God, and if he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Right? Well, at that point, um, by whatever somebody responds, you think, well, okay, I'll figure out where to start. One of the things I want us to recognize is the conviction that we have, especially as you have to know your own culture, right? But especially in realizing we're going to do ministry outside of our culture, there's some things that we've got to grasp that are just different. D. James Kennedy wrote this many, many years ago when we were way more of a Christian nation than we are now. So people had an understanding of who God was. That, that question assumes a lot. If you were to stand before God, which God? Right? What is God? Right? It just assumes a lot of those things. Why should I let you into my heaven? It assumes a lot. My encouragement for you on some of these things is to, to just recognize you can't take these things for granted anymore. When you start in your teaching and your evangelism and your ministry, these things ought to change um, because of, of the gospel, because of what we know. So let's go real quick to Psalm chapter 2. It's not really a chapter, it's Psalm 2, sorry. My Bible professor in college would be so mad at me if he heard me say that. So you understand if you're in, a, in India and you're talking to a Hindu and you say, I want to tell you how to get eternal life. Do you know what a Hindu would say? You say, I've already got it. I'm trying to get rid of it. Right? 
So my point is you can't assume. And in our culture, I want to encourage you that it's getting worse and worse. You can't assume. So what you start with is God. We start with who God is. But I'll show you this example. Psalm chapter 2 is a really great passage. would love to unpack the whole thing, but I don't have that time. But Psalm chapter, second Psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, so that's the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on, my, on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Beautiful missions verses here. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore... O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Beautiful passage. Uh, Lots uh, involved there, but I want to show you what lostness is, okay? So lostness, if you see it right there in verse 2, so the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So who is man? Man is, by our rebellion, by our sin against God, we are rejecting God's authority. A very simple understanding to recognize lostness is we reject God's sovereign rule over us. We don't want His sovereign rule over us. What do they try to do? Let's break the bonds apart. Let's keep him from being able to chain us in his sovereign rule. So this is really, you know, the idea of communism. Communism is designed to try to create a society that is totally broken free from the restraints of God. Okay? But this happens to every individual. We reject his authority. Willingly reject his authority. We don't want him to have say in our life. We don't want him to have authority over life. We don't want to obey him. This is the difference in a lost person and a Christian. When somebody gets saved, it's the repentance, the turn. The first aspect of the turn is turning away from we want to be our own God, and now it's you have to be my God. You are my God. Right? That's the beginning aspect of conversion. Okay? I no longer want to break the bonds apart. I willingly and joyfully submit myself to your rule. Right? That has to be what it is in our Christian life. This is a great picture, I think, of lostness. Right? So recognizing these things, this is not, let's get them to pray a prayer. Praying a prayer does not change. Right? There's, there, there's no repentance that's happening. You realize I'm attacking a certain methodology of evangelism. I apologize, but no, I'm not really. I don't apologize. So the point that we have to start with when we recognize that this is the natural state of man is we start with who is God? Well, God is your creator. And so since he created you and he created all things, then he actually owns all things. And this is what God responds, basically. He said, well, first of all, he laughs. So I have an 11-year-old daughter that looks 16. She's gorgeous. I, uh, uh. <laughs> but if a 16-year-old boy walked into my house and said, I'm here to take your daughter on a date, I would laugh like that. <laughs> I would laugh the way God laughs, Right? would hold them in derision. That means mockery. No, no, you're not. No, you're really not. I would laugh. And God says, here's why. I have already set my anointed in Zion. He's on my holy hill. God says, there's things that are in order before the foundations of the world, and you, you little flea bag, you're not going to change anything. Right? 
This is the, the, lost, the lost people can, can war all they want, try to break those chains. They're not changing his sovereign rule. Right? And so we teach them our proclamation of the gospel starts with who is God. Not if you were to stand before God, I, I really encourage you to go back deeper because which God do they believe? They probably don't have a biblical understanding of who God is. And they certainly don't understand what it means that he is creator and their owner, which means he has full right and authority to do whatever he wants with them. They can reject that. Haven't you seen an unbeliever reject that idea? I don't like that. Tough luck, right? You need to reject that idea and embrace reality because the reality is the God, the sovereign God of the universe owns all things, including you. And so because he's the owner, we have to honor him as owner. That's what he requires. The next thing that we teach about who God is is he is holy. He is holy. If we jump, most of the time evangelism starts with, well, do you know that Jesus loves you? And to most people, we're like, don't know who he is, but obviously. (laughs) Why would they not? Right? That is not the best place to start. Do we get there? Sure. But there's a lot of other things that has to be covered first. We can't take all those things for granted. Okay? So, God's your creator, the owner, and he's holy. Now, this is where it gets to be a problem for us. Not only do we hate this and want to reject his sovereign rule, now we realize that we have broken his laws. And we are deserving of righteous punishment. Right? He's holy. He's a holy God. So in this understanding, we grasp law, we grasp who his nature and character is, and it's only then can we see who we are. You don't start with who man is. Well, you're lost, but Jesus loves you. Lost of what, right? What's the big deal? The, the old saying the preachers used to say is before you get them saved, you've got to get them lost. And this is that understanding. Help them grasp the problem. Right? If, if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, listen, I've got to cut that arm off. No, right? <laughs> but if he spends 15 minutes with me going, man, that's got gangrene in it and it's gonna, the infection is going to take over your body and it's going to kill you. Well, here, you know, need me to hold the saw? What do you need me to do? <laughs> right? Now I'm more interested in the cure because I know the problem. Well, we've got to help the lost world to understand the problem. Make sense? Okay. So it's then that we now get to who we are. We grasp our sinfulness, our rebellion against him, and now we're interested in what the cure is. So it's God first, man, now Christ. For God so loved. Yes, God loves you. We don't know why. Right? Right? This is the greatest news on the planet. This is why grace is amazing. Yeah. If you, you know, if John Newton was taught the gospel the way we teach the gospel now, he'd have never wrote Amazing Grace. <laughs> but we get things in the right order, and it makes so much more sense. So our proclamation matters. I hope that makes sense. So. Now we get the cure in who Christ is. And then we understand what it is we must do. This soteriology. What does a person need to do to be saved? They've got to repent and believe. Okay? Repent and believe. Not pray a prayer, get their ticket to heaven, and go live the rest of their life like an atheist. So last last few months, I've been going to a man named Doyle. I've been going to his house. He's had stage four cancer and teaching this stuff over and over to this old man who was convinced that when he was 13 and he prayed this prayer, this guy led him to pray this prayer. He was convinced he was fine with the Lord. begging him to see the truth 
for weeks. And he told me the last time I went, he said, I understand what you're saying, but I think I'm just going to try it with what I've got. He died. They didn't ask me to do the funeral because I'd have probably told the truth. But they brought in this guy that said, aren't we glad that he's in a better place? And just told all those 50 people that I've been trying to get for the last two and a half years to understand that the Bible teaches something different. Church, the most important thing for your missions strategy is your biblical conviction of the gospel. Or else you're going to be wasting money and wasting time and having lots of fun getting cool pictures. I wish I could believe it for you. These things are what give us our methodology. It means that we don't do... I've got something. I I get stuff from mission agencies all the time. And I I got something a couple of months back that said, our 3,000 missionaries planted 22,000 churches this year and uh, had 190,000-something people come to Christ. Which means that uh, every missionary planted what, 12 churches? Something like that? Six churches? I assume they were in couples. I think that's what I did, and that's where I got to the number 12. So each couple planted 12 churches. Mike, what's your problem? <laughs> why, have you only plant, why are you only working in one? <laughs> you spend way too much time in one, right? So somebody sends you this, some mission agency sends you this, and you look at it and go, oh, this is all tremendous. It's a lie. What I want you to grasp is they have a really poor theology that has allowed them to have really poor methodology. And they do something that's called disciple-making movements. Okay? So I, I got some of these to give away. I, set, I made sure you two have one, right? Uh, I haven't got one yet. This will be yours. I've got some more, if anybody's interested. But disciple-making movements, it's time for a break, right? Uh, you got, you got one minute? One minute, all right. <laughs> this will be the longest minute of your life. So, <laughs> disciple-making movements, if you're not, you're not supposed to know this, okay? I, I want to help you. Don't, don't be like, I've never heard of it. It's okay. That sounds like a great term, right? Disciple-making, yeah, that's what I want to do. Let's see this movement of disciple-making go. I'm going to caricaturize this, okay? Please don't be offended if you know it, somebody that's in it. But this is true. A disciple-making movement, one of the things it does is it makes where the missionary is not a proclaimer, they're just a facilitator. So that's the first difference. They're not allowed to teach, right? Y'all's job is to teach. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? To teach pastors and teachers, right? Their missionaries are just facilitators. They try to get together what's called a discovery Bible study. That also sounds good. I want to do that. Have unbelievers show up to discover what the Bible says? Sounds great. Here's what they do. They give them a portion of scriptures and without teaching anything, just facilitate. Please read this. What do you think it means? I'm not allowed to correct. So if justice was to say, what did I say earlier, Jesus was the reincarnation of a hippo or something like that? If he was to say that, I have to say, hmm, good thought. <laughs> you think I'm joking. That's not a joke. So they do that, and then they come up with, well, what do you think you're supposed to do by whatever we just read in the Bible? And somebody will say, we think we should do this. And the facilitator goes, does anybody in here want to do that? And everybody who wants to do that raises their hand. And this person says, five people are now Christians. 
because they want to obey Jesus. Gets worse. They then say, check, I just planted a church. Even if we ne- this church never meets again in this Discovery Bible study, I have planted a church. And that organization raises $160 million a year to do that. I personally think it would be better for the church to be educated and equipped on proper biblical methods so that we could invest and steward our resources in things that are more biblical. The best thing for those people to do would be to come home. They're exporting something that is not true. So their soteriology is poor. Their ecclesiology is non-existent. That's their doctrine of the church. It's non-existent. They don't understand these things. These mission methodologies are happening out there. And I want you to be have at least some basic understanding of them so that you can say, no, we reject that because we want to embrace the reality of this is the way the gospel is to be proclaimed. This is the way churches are to be planted. Right? Make sense? Okay, that was a long minute. Questions, comments, fears, or frustrations? We've done one thing so far. We've, we made it to one step. <laughs>